Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Do you love your Bible? Do you try as hard as you can to obey the commands of Scripture? Do you love coming to church? Do you have strong morals and principles that you live by? Do you want to be a righteous person? Do you struggle being around people who don't agree with you? If you answered yes to those questions, you're a lot like the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament. This can be kind of convicting. Sometimes we have a way of, of saying, oh, those Pharisees, they're them, right? But we are them. There's a little bit of Pharisee in me, too. If I'm honest, I have a tendency to build up a righteousness of my own. The, the Pharisees, uh, the commentator that I've been drawing most uh, frequently from calls the Pharisees, he doesn't like to use the word Pharisee because he thinks that we've, we've put a lot of, like, uh, basically we have a certain perspective that comes to mind when we hear the word Pharisee, right? And so he calls them the spiritually serious instead. That might be some of us. That spirit, I think, lives in some of us, especially those that I'm talking to this morning who have put their butts in the seats on a rainy Sunday morning. I've got another uh, set of questions for you. Again, these are for reflection. You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, this, this next set of questions refers to a different type of person or a different state of being. Do you feel desperate? Do you feel uh, overwhelmed? maybe anxious, worried? Do you feel like an outsider sometimes, like someone that's on the outside looking in? Do you feel sometimes like a second-class citizen? Do you feel needy? I think all of us could probably agree that sometimes we also feel that way or we have felt that way, depending on our life story or where we're currently at in our journey. So the point is just to get us thinking, sometimes we are like these spiritually serious Pharisees, aren't we? Building up a righteousness of our own, building up a sense of justification we can cling to. I've done it. I've done enough, right? That's, what the, that's the heart of the Pharisee. But you know, if we're honest, sometimes we also feel like we've not done any of those things. Some of us walk in here this morning feeling disqualified, feeling a strong sense of shame, some of us walk in here this morning, many of us feeling overwhelmed, anxious, like we're not measuring up, fully aware of how we're not measuring up. Today, uh, we're going to look at three stories in Matthew 15. Uh, and in these stories, we're going to see a very important shift in the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. We're going to see this trajectory shift from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And from a focus on the people of Israel to the inclusion of the nations. This is a pretty cool shift 
that we're going to see today. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to teach through the whole chapter. Normally, I break it up a little bit more, but I'm going to talk about three stories today instead of just one. But in the end, you know, what we're going to see at the end of Matthew chapter 15, what we're going to see is a picture of Jesus presiding over his church, Jew and Gentile alike. That means people born into the family of God and those who were not born into the family of God. Perhaps it means that first group of people that I described with a righteousness of their own, as well as that second group of people fully aware of all the ways that they're not measuring up. Do you get what I'm saying? At the end of this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus has included not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. And, and, and we'll see that as he heals and as he feeds in the story of the feeding of the 4,000, these masses that have gathered around him, we see a display that alludes to the coming meal of remembrance. He'll share on his last night with his disciples. We call this meal, we call that meal, the Eucharist, maybe, if you've come from Catholic backgrounds. Perhaps you've come from a background that refers to this meal as the Lord's Supper. We often call it that. Or just simply communion. That's another name for it as well. But I believe the picture that we're going to see at the end of Matthew chapter 15 is the gathered body of Jesus, which is his church. Megan alluded to it already. The big church, all Christians worldwide, right? The local church, like this church here in Exeter, and even smaller gatherings uh, of believers anywhere are really what it means to be the church. And so we're going to end Matthew chapter 15 with a picture of the church. So in this chapter, Jesus moves around quite a bit. I think it's actually pretty remarkable how much he moves around. Uh, I assume like walking everywhere, uh, like before pedometers were a thing, Jesus was getting his steps in for sure. So I wanted to start by getting our bearings straight and showing a, uh, a map. That was a play on words, bearings straight. I have no, no mean to, uh, no intent to refer to the bearings straight. Anyways, um, we're testing geography today. So geography is important here because it, 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 it tells us a story of how Jesus' ministry is shifting, okay? So where we left off, Jesus was in Gennesaret, okay? A place called Gennesaret. It's in Galilee, which is a Jewish region, okay? So he is in his homeland, not far from Capernaum, which is where he like spent most of his adult life living, okay? So Jesus was, he's kind of like in, in home, like friendly territory, okay, at the start. Um, and this is where he's going to encounter the Pharisees. Then in our second story, though, he's moved quite a bit up northwest. I think I tried to do the little like legend, you know, the little keys. I think it's like 50 miles, but he's in our second story. He's way up north in Syria. It says he went to Tyre and Sidon on the coast. He took a little trip to the coast, a little getaway. But now this is important to know Jesus is in enemy territory when he's in Tyre and Sidon. So the second story, when he encounters the Canaanite woman, he's here in enemy territory. This is a Roman province. This is Roman-occupied territory. You may remember the term Cana, right? The Canaanites. These were the people that the, the people of Israel conquered way back when Joshua was leading them into the promised land. This is like Old Testament references here. But these are like the rivals of God's people, the Canaanites, right? It'd be like Giants Dodgers, Okay. So he's in enemy territory. So he's gone from Galilee in our first story to Syria, the land of Canaan in our second story. 
enemy territory. Then it says uh, in our third story, it says that he comes, he returns to the Sea of Galilee. And in the Matthew version, you're not really sure like where that's like, that could be anywhere around this lake that they call the Sea of Galilee. But if we read Mark's version of this story in Mark chapter seven, it actually says that he, he came all the way down to the Decapolis, which is a region in Greek, Decapolis means 10 towns. So He's down in here by the Sea of Galilee, probably somewhere around here, according to this map. So Jesus is doing a lot of traveling. So first story here, second story up there, third story down here. Here's the thing you got to know about Decapolis, though. This is, again, this is, quote, unquote, enemy territory. So Jesus is shifting his ministry from Galilee and the surrounding uh, sea region to, like, enemy territory. This is profound. So I wanted you guys to see that on the map. So here we go. Let's get into our first story. And like I said, there's going to be a lot of reading um, today. So I I have the passage uh, on the screen. The first thing that we're going to hear about is what I call their tradition, the tradition of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It says in Matthew 15, 1, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. How about that, kids? But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So do you see what's happening here? There's three exchanges taking place in this story. We've got Jesus and the Pharisees. The initial question says the Pharisees came up from Jerusalem. They'd heard about Jesus, evidently. They made quite a trek themselves to get to Jesus. And then Jesus addresses the crowds that are listening to this conversation. So he he actually answers the Pharisees first with a question. Got to love Jesus and his way of responding. You've got a good question. He's got a better one. And then he he addresses the crowds. And then finally, we see Jesus addressing or, or kind of coaching his disciples through the lesson. 
In the first exchange, the Pharisees think they've caught Jesus. And they were, you know, if you've been paying attention, we've seen this multiple times by now, right? The Pharisees are getting controversial and they are trying to catch Jesus doing something he shouldn't be doing, right? Because if they could, then that would show that he's not the son of God. He's not the Messiah. He can't possibly be the chosen one. So they're trying to catch him, right? And, and what they're trying to catch him in is that Jesus and his disciples have been disobeying the holiness code of the Old Testament, the Torah, that, that called for, among other things, ritual hand-washing as a sign of being set apart and ritually clean. And you have to love how Jesus answers them, right, <laughs> with the question. This is the way of Jesus. Parents, you, we could learn quite a bit from this. But he, he aims his question back at their heart condition. In a way, he, like, reflects their question back. He's not willing to play on the trivial side. He's not willing to get into the fine print. He's reflecting their heart condition back to them. So he's shedding light on, on, on a practice because it can be a little bit confusing. You're like, wait a minute, how does honoring your father and mother, what does this have anything to do with what we're talking about here, Jesus? But he's, he's shedding light on a practice called Corbin. So in the language here that, that this was written in, Corbin would be the word uh, that they use instead of, like, we, we take that to mean devoted. So in your Bibles, it probably says devoted. You're taking that which is devoted to your father and mother, right? Or uh, the opposite. You're taking what, sh- what should be your father and mother's, and you're saying this is devoted to God. That practice was called Corbin. So what they would do is they would set aside money that could be used to help their father and mother, but provide provision for them. And instead they'd set it aside and say, oh, this is devoted to God. Right. But really what they were doing is withholding from their father and mother. So Jesus says, why are you asking me about these ritual practices when all the while in your heart, you're disobeying the commands of scripture elsewhere by not honoring your father and mother. So do you see what's going on here? They're trying to get Jesus on the fine print. They're trying to get Jesus uh, on disobeying the letter of the law. But instead, he brings to them the spirit uh, of the law. And, and it kind of sounds good and well, right? Like we should obey the commands of Scripture. Jesus taught and, and preached that we should obey the commands of Scripture. I mean, Jesus said himself, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus was a law-following Jew. So then why is he bringing this up? Why is he allowing his disciples to not wash their hands before they eat, okay? Anyway, here's the deal. Jesus attacks the heart behind their practice. See, he, what he's attacking here is the heart of the Pharisee that would want to project an image that looks religiously devoted without actually being religiously devoted. This was the sin of the Pharisees. It wasn't what they did. We know that the Pharisees were the best at obeying the commands of the Old Testament law. They were the best. At one point, uh, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, their righteousness was way up here. They were the most righteous people of their day. They were pretty impressive spiritual people. But he attacks the heart behind the exterior behavior that they were performing. So he's coming after any heart that would want to project the appearance of being religiously devoted. And so... I've explained what this whole Corbin thing meant. And so Jesus goes on. He gets really personal here. He goes on and he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, it's like Isaiah. It's like my homie Isaiah said that it would be 
400 some years ago, right? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is how he describes the hearts of the Pharisees. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules or human traditions. So then that's the first exchange. In the next exchange, Jesus calls the crowd in close. So now he's talking to the crowd. So that was Jesus and the Pharisees. Now it's Jesus in the crowd. He calls the crowd in close and he explains to them that ritual purity, ritual purity without a pure heart is not purity at all. This would be mind-blowing, I would imagine, to this crowd, especially assuming that they're mostly Jewish. They would have grown up in a system where performing the law is what sets you apart as a Jew. It's what sets you apart as devoted. So Jesus is bringing about this really big shift. The shift that I described as geographical is also a really big heart shift. Is it not? These, th- these two things are going to work together, the geography and the heart condition. He says that it's the heart that causes one to be defiled. So again, huge statement, you guys. Huge statement for Jesus to make. He is nullifying much of the purity laws that these people were following and based their righteousness on. I mean, to us, this can seem like a no-brainer, right? To us, it can be like, of course, washing your hands has nothing to do with your relationship with God. But you got to get yourself in the minds of a first century Jew. To this, this was devotion. You know, I talk about being devoted disciples. This was one of the ways, one of the many ways that they showed their devotion to Yahweh. Washing their hands before they eat. And, and other, there's many uh, purity laws. So to us, it seems kind of weird, like, duh, what you do with your hands doesn't matter that much. But to them, this would have been a very profound Shift, And we got to get our minds in the minds of a first century Jew if we're going to understand the New Testament. So who they, they've got to be asking, like, imagine, like, who is this man that nullifies our law? Like, that's a big deal, right? Certainly they're thinking this guy's apostate, like he's fallen completely uh, off track. The other reason that this is really significant is that Jesus gets to the heart of all sin with this declaration, and maybe like you're aware of this because Jesus did this already in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus aims the problem of our sin, not just on the exterior behaviors that we perform, but he points to our sin being something that begins on the inside. Jesus cares not just about your sin. He cares about the sin beneath your sin. He knows that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's not just after external, like, compliance. He's after heartfelt compliance. So after Jesus has taken on the Pharisees, and then he's, he's addressed the crowds, now we get this exchange between he and his disciples. So it's, it's Pharisees with everybody watching. It's just crowds that he's gathered. And now it's his disciples. This is where Peter asks what seems like a really dumb question, evidently. Okay? So... It starts with a concern over the offense the Pharisees have potentially, I'm sorry, have apparently taken, right? So what we see here is that evidently the Pharisees were offended at what Jesus said, right? Like no surprise because he's called into question everything that they valued, everything that they put themselves forward with. And, and so they ask him like, oh, Jesus, you, you just offended our leaders, you just offended our pastors, so to speak, right? The people that we hold to like the highest levels of righteousness, 
you just offended them. Like, be careful. What are you doing? They're probably thinking, right? Like, those guys can have you killed. You know, but Jesus, he has no concern for their offense. He has no concern whatsoever. In fact, he goes on to call them blind guides. This is very uh, specific language, right? I mean, he's saying they're dumb. They cannot lead anybody. This is like a pretty, like, sometimes we think Christians should be really nice and tidy, right? And, and kindness is a virtue of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus is being, like, pretty harsh here. He's like, don't worry about them. They're blind guides, which is probably only adding to the shock. And so Peter leans in even closer. And, and you got, again, I mean, I, I personally am in the Peter fan club. Love Peter. Uh, Peter was never afraid to put his foot in his mouth, as we've learned already. But he was also so full of faith. You know, Peter was also not content with just leaving things hanging. He had to know he was always leaning in. So Peter, Peter leans in. He's probably, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you're like, you're not even concerned about their, the offense because you think they're blind guides. Oh, my goodness. So Peter leans in closer and he's like, seriously, like, what's going on here? Jesus, I, I don't think I understand yet. And what, Jesus says, what does he call them? He calls them dull. You know, like, man, Peter, you're just not getting it. I'll tell you again. And he tells another uh, parable. But what, again, what Jesus has just done is a big deal. He's undone the holiness codes of the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. In one fail swoop, he's done that. And he's challenged the status of Israel's most righteous group of people. So anyway, Peter needs to hear it again. And Jesus does bear with him, even though he calls him dull. Here, at this point, the main point is pretty clear, you guys. It's not one's ritual purity that can make you pure before God. It's not any external action that can make you pure before God. If the heart's not right, you ain't right. This is the basic principle that's being taught here. This is at the heart of the gospel. The condition of our heart is what we need to worry about. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons does not make one right with God. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons does not make one right with God. That's a powerful statement. We should, we should, uh, like we should want to see uh, our religious activity just completely cut off. We should yearn that like, we, we wouldn't do anything more out of a sense of like religious achievement. This is not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is heart change, transformation on the inside. And we're going to see in the next story what it looks like to have a transformed heart, what it looks like to have a truly pure heart in the story of the Canaanite uh, woman. So let's take a look at our second story, and we're going to look at her faith, the faith of this Canaanite woman. In your Bibles, it may say Gentile. They both mean the same thing, right? She's not a Jew. And, and in fact, she's actually ethnically part of the, rival, uh, the rivaling people group. Okay, so her faith. It says in verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, it says in verse 30, uh, 23. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. In verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. 
Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So first, notice the location. Where, where, where had Jesus gone? Out of Galilee into enemy territory, right? So it's here that we see this woman approach Jesus. And I think that this encounter, it's remarkable for several reasons. And all of these reasons reveal the intensity, the immensity of her faith, the heart that she has towards God. Number one, imagine the courage it would take. Imagine the courage it would take for a woman in that patriarchal society. Like, think about what you know of the Middle East today, right? This is, in a lot of ways, the culture that Jesus was brought up in. Imagine what it would take for a woman. Imagine the courage it would take for a woman to approach this, like, traveling group of male disciples and Jesus. And all the more, you know, she knows. I'm not one of them. They're of a different ethnicity, we're rivals, but yet she comes to him. Number two, the other reason, or the next reason I think this woman is remarkable is look at how she addresses him. What does she say? Lord. She says, Lord, number one. So this woman, she may be of a dif different ethnicity, but she knows who he is. She calls him Lord. The second thing that she uses to address him is son of David. This is a powerful declaration and acknowledgement that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the Messiah. So even though she comes from a different people group, she knew that he was Lord and she knew he was Messiah. This is really powerful. And then that, that, um, that third part, <laughs> Lord, son of David, that's who he is. The, the last part is what she needs. And, and what does she need? Mercy. Have mercy on me, she says. Notice the difference between how she came to Jesus and how the Pharisees came to Jesus. Huge difference in the position of her heart. Nothing about her believes she is standing in a position of power or righteousness. She says, Lord, son of David, I know who you are. Have mercy on me, right? Don't come to me because of all the things that I've done for you. That's not what she says. She says, have mercy on me. Now, what happens next, it, it, I'll be honest, it can be a bit of a, a speed bump for us. It's kind of a little bit odd the way that Jesus is behaving here because he doesn't right away respond to her faith by healing um, her. And it says like at first, her first plea, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She just, uh, he just continues on. Right? That's the first thing he does. He doesn't respond at all. She must become like kind of annoying because his disciples are like, Jesus, do something about this, right? They say it out loud, like, Lord, just ask her to leave, please. Probably thinking this is getting really annoying. You know, you can imagine, right? So that's, that's the first thing that happens. But he, he doesn't tell her to go away like his disciples ask. And so much of what we see for Jesus' heart towards this woman is found in not so much what he does say, but what he doesn't say. Because he could have said right there, go away, right? And so we see this hesitance. We see the almost distance of Jesus in this story. And it can be a little bit puzzling. But we got to think about what he didn't say. It's really powerful. He didn't say to her, go away. He continues on and he allows her to continue following, 
right? So anyways, uh, instead of telling her to go away, he says something, though, that's like not really helpful, right? Or it, not for us. It, it, it seems sort of dismissive, almost racist, what he says to her, right? He says, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Basically, I'm not going to help you because you're not Jew. I'm not going to help you because of the ethnic group that you're a part of. These are kind of hard work. Like, Jesus, are you talking like this? What is going on here? That's not the Jesus that we've seen, right? The Jesus that we've been seeing and reading about is certainly not racist. And he's extended himself, like, to the Roman centurion. We saw that early on. He didn't care about people's racial backgrounds. So what is Jesus doing here, right? Um, So, you know, and I just want to say, you know, like, that's important because there's like a, there's like a move of like, like we, we could call it like, you know, progressive deconstruction, like viewpoint that would say that all of Christianity is patriarchal and bigoted and racist, right? And they would say, look, see, there's Jesus being a racist, but we know Jesus better than that, right? That's a very problematic viewpoint to hold. Jesus wasn't racist. He wasn't anti-woman. We've already seen him heal women. We've seen him heal a Roman centurion's son. So that doesn't fit the picture. So that's not why he's saying that. But it still makes us wonder, why isn't Jesus just immediately answering this woman's faith? So he hasn't answered her request, but he's not ignoring her now. He has said something, and and he's not sending her away, right? So this woman's response is kind of like that phrase in Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Like, she, she's encouraged. She's, like, encouraged by the way he's responding to her. You know what I mean? He's like, well, his disciples wanted me gone. He didn't say I had to go away. And now he's actually talking to me. So I think I got a chance here, right? So uh, it, it ain't great right now, but it could be worse. And she knows it. So she continues on in her pursuit of Jesus, this time more demonstratively, right? It says she falls on her knees in worship. She falls on her knees in worship. This Canaanite woman knew who Jesus was. Lord, she called him, right? And so she responds by falling on her knees in worship. This is just, this is in response to what he's just said, right? Like, I'm not coming to help you because you're not a Jew. Whatever he said, however he said it, draw her, drew her closer to him. And she responds by kneeling on her knees in worship. And what does she say? The three words we heard Peter say, basically, right? Peter said, Lord, save me. When he stepped out of the boat just a chapter uh, ago, she says, Lord, help me. Again, folks, prayer does not have to be complicated, right? When there's a heart full of faith, Lord, help me will do. This is one of the most powerful prayers. If you don't think that you know how to pray, I'm here to tell you, you can know how to pray. You probably do know how to pray. If you know how to say, Lord, help me, then you know how to pray, Um, Her faith is so huge. Her faith is enormous. Not even Jesus ignoring her, not even Jesus' initial dismissive comment could dissuade her from pursuing him. She knows who this man is. She knows that she can come to him. She knows him enough to see through the dismissiveness and continue to pursue. At this point, uh, things take a bit of a turn for the worse. Uh, Jesus has already said something that kind of appears to be racist, and now he's going to say something, I think, even worse. He calls her a dog, right? He says, 
It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yeah, this is a speed bump here. Like we're reading the Bible. We, we've, like we've read the Bible, thankfully. Like this isn't, we're not just jumping in to this story. We've seen Jesus' character up until this point. And we've got to go back to that to help us understand what's happening here, right? Because we know that he's not racist. We know he's not a bigot. We know he doesn't hate women, right? So why is he calling her a dog, you know? I mean, he's already healed other women, so it has nothing to do with her being a, a woman. Like, why is he calling her a dog? So keep in mind here, and I don't know how much this helps, but you should know that the Greek word that's used here for dog refers to a house pet, okay? Not a street dog, right? They had lots of street dogs in those days that were like pests. This is not the word that he uses. It's like house pet. Some of you, if you're like really close to your dogs, you could probably be like, oh, that's really nice. He called her, a fam you know, the uh, man's best friend or whatever, you know? So anyway, so maybe that'll help a little bit, but... I mean, so at worst, he's calling her a house pet. Um, but I think his whole strategy here is actually, like, pretty clear. Um, and, and we've seen him do it before. This is one of the ways that Jesus would work where he would almost play hard to get. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like he knows as a teacher, sometimes, if, you, if you've ever been a teacher, sometimes you know that if you just give them the information without making them work for it, it doesn't really stick, right? You're kind of like trying to conjure up a, a sense of desire and pursuit. And I think that that's what Jesus is doing here. And it's certainly working because the, the woman's faith is being expressed. It's continuing to be showed. And she is not offended at what he's just said. Put that in stark contrast with the Pharisees and the offense that they took. So here we're seeing a picture of the type of faith, the true heart of faith that Jesus wants to have. It's not about where you were born. It's not about male or female. It's about the condition of your heart not about what's on the outside. So uh, like I said, it's pretty impressive how she rejects offense. And I, I just want to say, you know, like offense, you guys, like, I mean, especially offense, like spiritual offense. Can you imagine? Like, you know, we, in our DNA, the deconstructionist would be like spiritual abuse, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. It seems almost like spiritual abuse. Like that's what, but you guys, like offense, man, like, we've all probably experienced offense in some way or another, and, and many of us probably at the hands of the church. Like, I know some of your stories. I don't know all of your stories, but so many of us, myself included, have experienced some of our deepest hurt at the hands of the church. And this woman, she could have chosen to receive the, that as offense, but instead it grew her faith because she knew who he was. And so she says, and this is great, she's like, well, at least the family dog gets to eat. Again, what does she know about her position? She completely believes that she has no righteousness of her own. None. She completely believes that she's dependent through faith on him. She's desperate. This is the heart condition that gets Jesus, you guys. So she says, hey, at least... I could be like, get, get the crumbs off of your table. Like, I thought the Gentiles were completely excluded. I thought because of my race and social status, I would be completely excluded. But you're saying I'm in the house. I'm like the family pet. She's like, that's really good. That's really good. To her, that was her response. I'll take that. See, the Pharisees received Jesus' teaching with offense, but this woman has received his odd strategy by rejecting offense. She rejects her opportunity to take offense. My, my friends, this is the heart condition that gets Jesus. 
I think Matthew is screaming to us, be not like these religious leaders who are so focused on the fine print that they've neglected the greater commands of scripture. Be like this woman, completely aware of her need, with not a pot to pee in, as the phrase goes. Lord, have mercy on me, is what she said to him. Uh, In one translation, it says this. I love this about her faith. The translation goes like this. It says that her faith was terrific. Her faith was terrific. Jesus actually compliments her faith. He says, your faith is great. It's terrific. Your faith is terrific. And so I'm going to heal your daughter. In fact, your daughter right now is healed. You guys, this is it. It's not about dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. It's not about reading the fine print, making sure we get every letter of the law just right so we attain a righteousness of our own. Salvation comes through faith. It's grace that activates our salvation. And this is what we're seeing in this story. So you guys, like, we're learning. Jesus' law, it's like that Christmas carol says, right? I think it's O Night Divine. His law is love. Jesus is the law. And as we sang this morning, he loves us. He has such love for this woman despite her ethnicity. Jesus' law is love. It's not religious observance. Jesus is the law. This is what he's saying. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I came for all your pithy ability to follow the law. In me, you have righteousness, not of your own, but of me. I stand in your place. Jesus is a spirit of the law kind of guy, not a letter of the law kind of guy. Jesus is for the heart that presses in in faith. He's for the heart that comes to him in pursuit, even when he's dismissive, even when he tests our faith. He's for the heart that pursues him, regardless of ethnicity, gender, social status. Jesus receives the faithful hearts of every color or creed, which brings us to this last story. And I did not know what to do this story. I I said to myself, how am I going to preach another feeding story? Like, I got really excited for the feeding of the 5,000. How am I going to come back three weeks later and preach the story of the 4,000? It's less people, more bread on hand. Like, what am I going to do with this story other than try to convince you that Jesus approved of carbs? So this is why I think this story is important for us. Let me read it first. Jesus left there. He left Tyre and Sidon on our map. And he went along the Sea of Galilee, coming back south. Then he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. 
He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan, or Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, across the Sea of Galilee. So why repeat the story? This time with fewer people and more bread. Like, what gives? Why repeat the story? I I think there's three things that we can learn from this meal with Jesus. The first thing is this. This meal is another example of activity in a pagan region. The Decapolis. This is not Jewish territory. So see what Jesus has done. He started by telling the people of Israel. He came first for the people of Israel. But now the message is being spread to include the Gentiles, those born of a different ethnicity. He's in the Decapolis here, as we find in Mark 7. His mission is to all nations, you guys. This is good news for us, right? Most of us were not born Jews. This is good news for us, that there is, there is no longer Greek nor Jew. It is really profound, the location here of the feeding. The second thing I think is important about this meal story is that we often suffer from am- amnesia, right? Easily forgetting what God has done. This is one of the, the, the like, uh, things that we're most prone to do. The, the story of the Bible is, in a sense, the story of the people of God forgetting what he had done or what he had said. We forget really easily. Do you notice the disciples in this story, they'd already forgotten what he had just done. They're like, how are we going to feed all these people? You know, as a reader, kind of like in a, a bit of a, like a form of chronological snobbery, you're like, how do they not get it? <laughs> like he just, well, he's going to multiply the bread. That's what Jesus does. But no, they had forgotten. And if we're honest, we forget really easily too. And it's one of the reasons we're prone to worry Number three reason why I think that this is important relates to what we're going to do to end service today like we do every Sunday is that I think this is a picture. This picture is alluding to, it's foreshadowing the meal that Jesus will provide to his disciples. And notice what's happening here. Jesus, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was feeding probably a mostly Jewish audience, right? He was in his home turf, on his home turf. But here what we've seen is Jesus has expanded the trajectory of his ministry. And now he's, in, he's been to enemy territory. And he, he saw the faith of the Canaanite woman and he's, he healed her daughter. And now he's in the Decapolis, another pagan region. And he's going to heal everybody who's there. This is what he does. The Lord's Supper, it's a good reminder the Lord's Supper is about healing. He heals everyone that's there and now he's presiding over this church service. With all the people he's now included in his family, this is powerful. This is a picture of the universal church. Did you know this is what the term Catholic means? Universal, the worldwide church where everyone is included if you have a heart of faith, like we saw demonstrated from this Canaanite woman. Jesus is saying, look, you guys, it doesn't matter where you're, you're from. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you were born into. It doesn't matter what sin you've struggled with. It doesn't matter what bondage you live in. It doesn't matter what shame you carry. If you come to Jesus with a heart of faith, you can have salvation in him. 
That's the truth of the gospel. That's why we sing these songs. It's why we raise our hands. It's why we lift our voices to him. This is worth celebrating. And so this meal teaches us to remember what Jesus has done, to remember what Jesus can do. It says in the Bible that on the, on the night that he was betrayed, he brought this meal before his disciples and he said, I want you to take this bread and take this cup. And every time you do so, do so in remembrance of me. This is an act of remembrance because we often get amnesia and forget what God has done 